this is Pastor Nate Ward with Open Door Church, and I wanted to take a moment to welcome you to our podcast. It's my personal prayer that you would be encouraged and encountered by the Holy Spirit and challenged by His Word. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. So this morning, um, we're, we're going to continue on. Um, last week, Nate introduced uh, a, a series about what it means to be saved, and, uh, and I think there's something about um, our church, and I think even just the, the leadership over uh, the last uh, decade or so that didn't grow up in church, and so we feel the, the desperate need to define terms, because it's so easy to just say things, and people hear things, you're used to things without actually knowing what it means. And we talk about saved. It's like, that sounds very Christian. I don't usually say that where it's like, oh, you know, I, I missed traffic, so the day was saved. That's not ne- necessarily the way I think about my everyday life. So this has to be something that is separate from just my ordinary life, my ordinary experience. Um, but Nate uh, kind of introduced the idea last week, and he talked about being saved from something. And I know that he's going to expand on that, and I know he's got a bunch of outlines written. So I kind of came up with a different naming convention, just in case I, I hit on things that he's already planning on talking about. I promise this is not like a really, really like cut and dry, simple topic. There's a lot to this because humans are messy and complicated, and the Lord is really big. So today, um, as I was praying this morning, um, <laughs> uh, so uh, I usually take more time than a few hours to write a sermon, but this will be like an experiment between you and me. Uh, is this more coherent or less coherent than it usually is? Um, today, I, 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 uh, I wanted to use this phrase, why, do we, why are we saved? And, and I think there's a couple different ways you can look at that question. Uh, first of which is like, why do we need to be saved? Which I think is a very worthy topic. I think that's something that a lot of, uh, a lot of the church honestly struggles with, you know, is like, I feel like I'm okay, you know. Um, a few years ago now, we were in uh, Colorado Springs, we were living there, and uh, we were part of a missions organization and a prayer organization, and one of the things that we would do is at least once a week, we would take like three or four hours, and we would go out, and we would try to find people, uh, strangers, and just tell them about Jesus, and uh, our, our school leader, the guy who was kind of the head of what we were doing, had these great, like, tips and tricks and, like, cool strategies. So one of them, I think he took from a guy named Ray Comfort, that he would, like, take you through the Ten Commandments like it was a, a game show. And he would ask you if you are keeping one of those commandments. And then at the end, when you realize, like, no, I've definitely lied. I've definitely dishonored my parents. I've definitely not put God first. I've definitely like coveted and, and I've definitely lusted, all these sort of things, um, then it's like, by your own admission, you're a sinner that needs to be saved. And uh, I, I'll be honest to you, we would do this all the time. We'd go downtown, we'd go to UCC, US, UCCS, UCCS. Um, we would talk to college students, we'd talk to homeless people, we'd talk to people in lines trying to get into a club. I never got through all Ten Commandments. <laughs> Everybody would just be like, ah, no, I don't want to talk to you. And then usually, like, the homeless people that did want to talk to you were very hard to keep on topic. And so we never got through all Ten Commandments. But the idea was to arrive at the solution that you need to be saved and then offer you the good news that there is a way to be saved. There is something wrong with the world, and God has offered a solution to what is wrong. 
and it's good, and it's, and it's good news, and it's in Jesus. But I think as worthy of a topic as that is, that's not really what I was thinking this morning. That's not really what the Lord put on my heart. When I ask about why are, why, excuse me, when I ask about like why are we saved, I'm more talking about why does God save us? Because um, there are people who feel as if they can save themselves. There are people who feel as if they're hopeless, that this is just the way life is and this is just the way it's going to continue to be. But the, the reality that I want to communicate this morning is that God is the one that saves. He's the only one that can save. And, and it really begs the question, why? Why would he save us? Why would he rescue us? Why would he right the things that are wrong? If, if you've read the Bible once or twice, you realize that God has offered creative solutions to difficult problems. He, he once, in regret and mourning, destroyed the entire landscape of the planet with a flood. <laughs> and it's like, that's a creative solution. I wouldn't necessarily think of it that way. But it solved the issue that was on God's heart, and it solved the issue that was going on with a really depraved humanity. And he promised after that that he wouldn't do that again, so he can't do it now because he said he wouldn't. And he's really, really uh, honest and, and faithful. So I think starting with why does God save us rather than why do we need to be saved, I think is really compelling because it puts God in the first place. And I think there's something that the church has struggled with in terms of like, uh, like PR and like their representation to the world is that they generally tend to put like their pastors or their leaders or their worship music in first place. And then people are like, that pastor's a fraud. That doesn't make sense. That music is bad. I don't want anything to do with this. But if we actually make an effort to put God in the first place, then people actually have to get through him. And I remember talking to some, some teenagers when I was a youth pastor and just being like, what is the main reason when you like try to share faith and share the gospel with your friends, what is the main reason that people say that they don't want to follow Jesus? They're like, because Christians are hypocrites. And I was like, that's a wonderful reason, but that has nothing to do with Jesus. That has everything to do with people and people's inability to follow Jesus. But what if we just shifted the focus? Like, that's great. I have an answer to that. I have an answer to why people are nothing like Jesus, because people can be and often are hypocrites. So let's move on to Jesus. Let's talk about Jesus. If we could just get our eyes on Jesus, if we could actually put him in the first place, a lot of these side issues begin to, to, to break off, so to speak. So I think when we look at why God saves us, I, I came up with two major dimensions that we'll sort out really briefly this morning. Number one, I have them on the screen, if you have my two points. Yep. So the number one reason that the Lord saves us, and these aren't in order necessarily, it's not like top ten, it's just there are two of them, so I put them in this for purely homiletical purposes, the compassion and the love of the Lord. Number two is the glory and the supremacy of the Lord. So these are two reasons. They work really in tandem. They bleed into each other a bunch. It's hard to talk about one without talking about the other because I was like, maybe I should just talk about the love of God. Maybe I should just talk about the glory of God. I'm just going to try and fit both in. Forgive me. Um, because it's really hard to separate one from the other. But I think these reasons are really important because number one emphasizes that God actually really genuinely cares about us. And sometimes that's as far as people get. God loves me. Obviously, I'm pretty special. So why wouldn't God save me? He has to, because I'm awesome. I obviously have some sort of marketable skill that the Lord is going to use in this great family business he calls the kingdom. 
So God's saving me because he needs help. And this is all like devolving into something really terrible in bad theology. The second reason really emphasizes that God is really passionate and really cares about himself. That he really is that good that everything exists for his glory. And it's not because he's like some sort of maniacal narcissist or something like that. He's really both. He really cares about you and he's really passionate about his own glory. That he knows objectively, without a doubt, despite debate, he is the most beautiful, wonderful, unique, and precious thing that could ever exist. Uh, I like a teacher that I had had this example. He's like, if you are standing, um, let's say you, you drive out Piedra Road, and uh, it's really easy. You don't have to drive for very long. You don't even have to hike, and you get to these like canyons where there's trees, and you get out there at sunrise, and the trees just, like the the sun just kind of fills the canyon and its trees and rocks. There's a little river down below, and it is beautiful. And I don't care who you are. If you stand there shoulder to shoulder with someone else, and you're like, wow, that is beautiful. And the person's like, I don't know. I don't really care for it. I, I, I think it's kind of gross. It's not a matter of like, oh, well, that's, that's up to you. That objectively... <laughs> is beautiful. <laughs> that like, 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 if you don't think that's beautiful, you're wrong. It's not a matter of your opinion. And people use the op example of the ocean. People use the example of, of like being in an airplane and seeing the clouds below you, these kinds of things. It's like, that is beautiful. If you don't think that's beautiful, we need to talk about you. It's not a matter of that. It's you. And I think when we, when we speak of the Lord, we like to think about him like, especially in our modern day and age, it's like, well, Jesus is good for me, but I don't want to impose that on somebody else. It's like, no, he's just good. If I could have the kind of faith to assume that Jesus is just good, objectively, if you don't realize that, if you don't see that, let's look closer. Let's spend a little bit more time looking. And that's why we could be so bold as to say he's the only way to be saved, because he's the only way. I don't think he's the way for me. I think he's the way Full stop, period. And I think that, that, I mean, that sounds difficult, but when we come to these two reasons that he actually is really passionate about you and that he's really honestly that glorious and he deserves all the attention that he gets and so much more, that when he says to love you, him with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, that's not an exaggeration, that's not hyperbole, and that's not unreasonable. That just is the bare minimum that he deserves. Does that make sense? And these motivations are, are coming from a real personality that I'm so thankful, and, and, I, and I'm not thankful enough, and I want to be thankful more often, that God is not an ideal, that God is not philosophy, God is not even theology, God is a person, kind of like you and me. I think, um, I think Debbie prayed uh, from Isaiah 55 this morning in pre-service prayer where it's like, your thoughts are not my thoughts. Your ways are not my ways. I remember the first time I read that. It's a unique opportunity to remember the first time I read that. And I remember thinking like, wow, God has thoughts. God has ways. I have thoughts. I have, he's kind of like me, or I guess I'm kind of like him. But the reality is he has a personality and he has outworkings that come from his personality. And over and over again throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament, they use this word that is so precious and unique that is holy. That he's unlike anyone else. He's so different and he's so special and he's so unique. 
And that personality has outworkings. It has things that come out of it. And we get to see these motivations, and they directly affect us, not just in this life, but forever. So let's look at number one. Let's look at compassion and love. If you have your Bible, you can turn with me. If not, it will be on the screen, so no, no pressure. Um, Matthew 9. This is such a relevant passage, and I love when you get like little chunks of Bible like this because they really just define themselves, and it's pretty, pretty precious, pretty beautiful. <clears throat> I'll give you a second. Matthew 9, starting in verse 35. Um, it says, Jesus was going through all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. 36 says, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Now, there's some language here that is contained within the passage that isn't necessarily like completely like systematically worked out in the rest of Jesus's teaching, that's something that Jesus did a lot. So people that claim that Jesus was just a good teacher, he really uh, didn't explain himself very often. He had to be asked intentional questions, which I think he did on purpose. So that way you would like try to get to know him. But he would say things like this to multitudes of people and you'd just be like, what is the harvest? What are the workers? What are you talking about? Beseech, what does that even mean? No, it's just kidding. They probably understood that word. But I love this verse because um, it's included in Matthew's uh, record and his biography, the context of what's going on. So things are happening before this. But then in verse 35, he's like, basically, the situation that I'm describing is Jesus is doing it, man. He is going everywhere to everyone. He is declaring the gospel of the kingdom, which is its own sermon and a very important topic. He is... He's sharing about good news. He's, he's being a great example. He's healing sickness. He's providing things. We know from the rest of the biography of Jesus, he's affecting miracles, like, like multiplying food and creating these sort of miraculous things. He's doing these things. And then he reflects out loud so the disciples could hear him. And, and, and thousands of years later, you and I could hear him say that he had compassion that he looked at the state of the world, not just the people that were immediately in front of him. I believe that this is a context that applies in every time, in every place, forever. He looked at them and had compassion. I picture his shoulders just dropping and looking. I picture tears in the corner of his eye as he just looks out on the people that are probably enjoying a, a supernaturally prepared feast and they're probably laughing, and they're probably, like, celebrating that they just got healed. And he looks at them. He, he says that they're distressed. The state of this world is dispirited. They're lost. Even though I improved their physical condition, I changed the way that they're living today, there's something that is missing. They're like sheep without a shepherd. I remember... Uh, Mark Thomas, years ago, we were sitting in a, in a Tuesday morning, uh, like 6 a.m. men's prayer breakfast, and he's like, the Lord told me to get sheep. And you know what I learned from, from keeping those sheep? And I was like, what? What did he learn? This wise, wise man who's been in the church forever, sheep are dumb. <laughs> they really need somebody to take care of them. 
and I was like, oh Lord, that's so that's so real. I feel that. I feel I feel the the ache of that, like the reality that we need a shepherd. Sheep need a shepherd. And he looks at them and he feels compassion. He's like, there's so much work to do. There's so much reasonable, worthy labor to be partakers of. But we're just missing the workers. And I just love that. Because as much as we could improve the conditions of our town, as much as we could make people's lives a little bit easier, the condition that, that, that moves the heart of God, the thing that he feels compassion towards, is the fact that the state of the world as he sees it t- today clearly is lost. And it's not that he sees the world like, that's my enemy, I'm going to destroy it. No, he sees the world, he sees you and me, he sees us before him, and he sees us as lost that we've missed the point. We are, we are doomed towards destruction. And I think in this, throughout the biographies, I, I started reading a book this week, so the language is really in my head. But um, So forgive me if this feels disjointed. Throughout the biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see that Jesus isn't necessarily just concerned with the inevitable hell. He talks about it in an alarming amount, more than a lot of churches are comfortable with. He talks about it, but what he's more concerned with is today. He's very concerned with what you're doing now. He's very concerned with your body. He's very concerned with with the way that you spend your money. He's concerned with the way you think about him, the way you think about yourself, and today. It's not that he just wants to hand you a get-out-of-hell-free card, so that way someday, hopefully long from now when you die, you'll be okay. He wants you today to follow him. He wants you today to embrace what he calls the kingdom, this new way of life that is completely contradictory to the way that the world functions left unfettered. And I think that's really powerful because that that kind of brings um, significance to this word lost because it's not just a matter of like, I don't know where my destination is. It's a matter of, like, I currently don't know where I'm going. <laughs> I currently am just trying to make, like, fake it till I make it, and it's not going to work. But Jesus is like, today, I want to reorient you. Today, I want you to follow me and follow my path. And I think um, Shelby and I were just talking about this last night, that she said something to me when she was 16 and I had just gotten saved, that even if heaven wasn't the, the end even if like eternal peace and paradise, the new Jerusalem, streets of gold, whatever, even if that wasn't the end of the story, Jesus is still worth following because he's Jesus. And that's a a tense thing, but like the point is he's really good. He's really loving. He's really compassionate. He's given us a lot. But despite restoring um, our conditions and, and making things a little bit easier, he wants to change the way we think and he wants to change the way we live for the better. So let's look at a clarifying passage. Um, let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. This is really great. Uh, one of the times when we were walking around downtown Colorado Springs, um, our, our prompt, our, our strategy to, to get people saved was to uh, find a high place that you could stand up on and just start preaching. He's like, we've got lots of examples of stories where this totally works, so totally do it. And I was like, wow, that sounds awesome because I don't actually have to talk to somebody face to face. 
And everybody else was like, oh, that's so scary. And I was like, that, it was way more scary to just be like, hey, stranger, <laughs> let's, let's make eye contact. You know, like, um, that's way more intimidating to me. So I'm out there. I generally carry a backpack because I have a lot of paraphernalia, apparently. Um, and so I'm out there with my backpack, probably wearing an outfit similar to what I am right now. Um, and, I, and I found a street corner where there was a good amount of homeless people, but there was also a lot of traffic that would just stop on the corner and wait for the light to change and stuff like that. It's right on, uh, I think, Bijou Street downtown, if you ever go to downtown Colorado Springs. And it was uh, Saturday night, so it's pretty busy. There's a lot of people, there's clubs down there and stuff like that. So I just stand up. And I was like, all right, I'm going to talk about Ephesians chapter 2. And I'm like, I have good news. Everybody pay attention. I have good news. And people are stopping, and they're like, is this a homeless person? <laughs> or is this a Jesus thing? And I was like, I have good news. And this guy stops and he looks at me and I was like, we're all dead. And he's like, oh. <laughs> and he just keeps walking. But um, Ephesians 2 starts, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Verse 2, and you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we, all, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the, man, of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And this is so hopeless feeling. It's not saying like, someday you will be dead and you're stressed. No, it's saying today, right now. And, and if, you, if you dig a little deeper into the language that Paul uses, the prince of the power of the air is, a, is like, uh, I think it's from the, the Targum, and it's this idea that they would refer to the devil, you know, the snake, the, the bad guy. Like, they would refer to our enemy of our soul as the prince of the power of the air. And he's like, not only are you dead in your trespasses, but the devil is controlling you, and he's calling the shots. He's the one who's leading all the sons of disobedience, and you are a part of that team, Oh my gosh, how hopeless, how, how devastating that must feel. Like that, that young man who walked past me in Colorado Springs who was like, oh, no, I thought he was going to say something. He said he had good news. And, and I think it's, it's setting the stage for something that is so significant because it's setting this scenario where God is right to judge people and to judge them severely. And we can talk about that. We can argue about that. We can, we, you can have your opinions. We'll talk about that. I'm not just trying to be mean this morning. But what Paul is saying, who's a heck ton smarter than me, he's saying we are all hopeless. We are all doomed. And then in verse 4, he says, but God being rich in mercy. Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Think about that for a second. Even when we were dead, because of love, because of that same compassion. I read a weird thing this morning. I didn't have a lot of time, so it's not like word studies and scholar quotes and all that stuff this morning. But I was looking up the word compassion as it appears in, in Matthew 9. And there's this definition of it is like this tenderness having to do with your bowels. 
And I was like, what does that, why is that even in the, the synonyms? Why is that there? But what it's describing is like, it's not just this feeling of like, oh, I feel bad. It's this feeling that you get in your gut that you, you love and care for something. You have pity that's not just like, like you're superior to something, so you have pity for something. It's, it's something that gets deep inside of you, and that's the way the ancients would describe this compassion. That God being rich, being abundant in mercy and grace, while we were dead, he made us alive. While we were hopeless, while we had nothing to offer and nothing to contribute, he saved us from the wrath that we rightfully deserved. As we look to God and say like, oh, this isn't fair, that, this is not fair. What we deserved, we didn't get. But we were given everything. We were given treasure for rags. And that is incomparable. In Romans 5, Paul again is talking about like, man, a righteous man would, would maybe, maybe die for a good person. <laughs> but God demonstrated his love by dying for us while we were far away, while we were wicked, while we completely missed the mark. And he says, because of his great love, because of the compassion and the mercy that he had for us. In verse 6, Ephesians 2, And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So not only did he clear the debt, not only did he remove the shame, but he actually brought us close to him that we could actually have friendship, which, spoiler, is the reason that we're alive. It's the reason that any of this is happening, is that we could know him. Look at verse 7. So that, always look for a so that. I don't know how your translation renders that phrase. The so that is so important because the so that is so that important. Because it's giving you reasons. People all the time are like, man, there's no, like, there's no logic to the Bible. There's so much logic to the Bible. He explains himself so clearly. The reason that he did this is so that he could show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He's saying, I rescued you from the wrath that you rightfully deserved so that I could love you forever. So that tomorrow morning when you wake up, you can realize without a doubt that you are loved by the creator of the universe who in all wisdom looked at you and said yes to loving you by his own volition. He's not bound to this like he's a slave. He's not some cosmic doormat that we just step all over. He is the king of the universe, and he's saying, yes, I love you, and I'm going to save you so that way I can show you how kind I am forever. I can show you how good I am forever, not just in the age to come, but in this age as well. He's going to show us. He's going to comfort us. He's going to be with us. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And I love this, because something that Nate hinted at last week, which is pretty important, I'd say like pretty stinking important, is that God isn't just saving us from ourselves, 
though that is true in part. God is not just saving us from hell, though that is true in part. What he's actually saving us from, what he's making clear, is that he's saving us from himself. That he is the judge. He's the creator, and he is the judge. So it's just like if you built a house, and your house started falling down, you could rightfully say, this house is trash, (laughs) and I'm going to demolish it, and I'm going to start over. And he could look at your life and be like, you are not doing what I designed you to do, so I can rightfully, I have the right to judge you. But what he did is that he actually saved you from himself. And I just want to dispel like a theological error that happens all the time, that people read the Old Testament and they're like, this God is mean. He's, he's kind of serious. He reminds me more of my dad than I'd like to mention. Like, this is pretty rough. I'm a better dad than he is. This is, this is hard. He seems so intense. But Jesus, I like Jesus. Jesus seems really nice. And I want you to understand, we, we read this in Hebrew. It's been a couple months now, but we've been reading Hebrews as a church on Tuesday nights. And we read this, that, that Jesus, in, in chapter 1, Jesus is the exact radiance and representation of what God is like. That we, we, don't, have, we don't know one without the other. That the same wrath that exists in in God as you interpret in the Old Testament is the same wrath that exists in Jesus. And the same tenderness and gentleness and love and compassion in Jesus is the same tenderness, love, and compassion that exists in God in the Old Testament. It's not good cop, bad cop. It's not like the one cool parent and then the, the parent who actually has to discipline you. They are absolutely in harmony. They are one. And I think it's important to realize that God saved you from God. <laughs> and it's, it's marvelous because there was justice that needed to be served, and God took it upon himself. Do you, uh, it's been a few months now, but do you guys remember that story that I shared that was like the like Af- African folk story about the gospel? Where it was like the king and his mother. Do anybody remember that? <laughs> Maybe later, I don't, uh, we'll, we'll see. Anyways. He treasures you. He loves you beyond what you can offer to him. And I think that actually kind of lets the pressure off. That as we're following Jesus, as we're trying to do what he tells us to do, whatever. It's like, you didn't save me because I had something that you wanted. You saved me because that's who you are. Because you're a good father. Because you are a tender, loving God, that's why you saved me, not because I have some sort of skill that you need to harvest out of me. And honestly, at least for me, and I hope this, this translates to you, that actually motivates me to be better. <laughs> if I was just saved so that way I could do, like, uh, I don't know, church social media and play the guitar, I would feel pretty anxious, <laughs> But if I was saved just because I'm loved, it's like that makes me want to practice the guitar. That makes me want to do church media better, you know. That makes me want to read the Bible more intentionally. That makes me want to share the gospel more actively because I'm not trying to earn anything. This was a gift from God. In Hebrews 12, it describes this as as joy that motivated the Lord. That we've got compassion and love, and it says that for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. That it wasn't just this sort of thing like, oh, God told me I have to. Now I have to. In Isaiah 53, it's described that the father was pleased. 
to be, to be uh, smote, to be stricken. It pleased him because of that love, because of that joy, because of that motivation. Jesus kind of foreshadowed this in John 15, uh, starting in verse 12. It says, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Again, that's its own message by itself. So take that home, write that on your hand, write that on your fridge, whatever. Verse 13 says, greater love has no one than this, than that one lay down his life for his friends. That he's showing like, man, I am not only living a life for you, but I'm dying a death for you. And all of this is significant as a demonstration of love and compassion and joy. So let's look at the second one. The second one is glory and supremacy. The image that this begs is a triumphant, confident, well-armored, well-weaponized king blazing into a battlefield to take back what belongs to him. And maybe when you read the biographies of Jesus, that's not what you see. But there, that is such an accurate depiction because Jesus is not just the humble servant, uh, craftsman guy who lived for a f- uh, like a couple decades and then died. He is the king. He is the rightful owner of the universe and everything that exists. And like, like Paul was, was noting in Ephesians 2, that the enemy, the accuser, the Satan, the devil, he is trying to pretend like he's in charge. And there are a lot of people that are falling to the lie. There's a lot of people that are deceived. There's a lot of people that, regardless of what Satan is doing to them, they're just living their own life, just trying to do their own thing. And Jesus is coming armored and ready for battle to say, I'm taking back what belongs to me. That he is the king, and, and in the end of the story, he will defeat the enemies. He will bring forth justice all over the earth, and everything that is wrong will be made right. And his perfect judgment will, will echo from, from every point on earth. People will be praising the Lord as the righteous one. And as he walked the earth in his incarnation, whether it was in, in obscurity, meaning like the first 30 years of his life where he, nobody was really paying attention to him, he lived in an outrageously small town, um, not really doing much, or whether it was in controversy where he's saying things that are rerouting everything that people believed at the time and revealing the truth about God, he was doing just this. He was a man of war riding into battle, subverting everything that people thought about God and making them realize the righteousness of the one true king. The one that he deserves allegiance and no one else does. He deserves worship and no one else does. And in his nonviolent approach where he said, love your enemies, bless those that persecute you, he was incredibly violent. Because you realize the reaction that people had is they were really upset like, that's why he got killed. Because the things that he was saying didn't sit well with people. His nonviolent approach was remarkably violent. It was remarkably revolutionary. And we look at Jesus and we like to picture him as this, like, clean-cut, white, easygoing guy. But he was actually very intentional in the things that he was doing. I went to a concert 
oh gosh, it's probably six years ago or something now. And we were in Portland, Oregon, and this, this the, the, probably the hottest temperature I've ever felt in my life. We were in this attic, and it's punk rock music, and it probably went on, it felt like eight hours. Um, not, not really, but it, it went on for a long time, and everybody's sweating. The ink off of people's shirts is running because it's just so hot and so gross in there. And it's really chaotic, crazy music. And uh, in between songs, uh, the, the lead singer is just like, I, I'm here tonight because I believe that following Jesus is the most punk rock thing you can ever do. That he subverts every expectation that the world and man expects of you, and he embraces the true way to live. And there were probably plenty of people that were confused. <laughs> like, why? What? And there were uh, a couple, woohoo, yay, <laughs> like, that's why we're here too. And he's just sharing the good news about Jesus with all of this very mixed, odd, sweaty crowd. And I remember that language really sticking with me because the reality is following Jesus is, is upstream. Following Jesus is different, but what he is doing is actually gaining a lot of ground, and it's ground that rightfully belongs to him. It's not like he's trying to hostile take over something that, that uh, was harmonious and, and functioning beforehand. I love this in 1 John 3. Um, the author is, is kind of reflecting on what it means to follow God, what it means to keep Jesus' way, what it means to live without engaging in sin. And he says this in verse 8, The one who practices sin is of the devil. I know, you're tired of me saying this already. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God, being Jesus, appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. That the influence, the, the uh, malicious intent that exists in the world, the things that are going wrong, God has come in Jesus to destroy that. And, and I love this because this is not talking about the second coming of Jesus. There's no, like, prophetic sort of utterance that's happening here. Like, the, the author, who we believe is John, <laughs> that's why the book is named so, um, he's talking about, like, how to live now. Like, he's, it, like ch- chapter 2 actually opens with, I'm writing this to you so that we, you don't keep sinning. But if you do sin, Jesus loves you, and he's going to take care of you. So let's keep going. Because the one that practices sin is, is following the father of lies. But the one who embraces truth in the light belongs to God, and God is destroying everything else. He's going to tear it down with his subversive, beautiful, nonviolent love. It's going to destroy all the darkness. It's going to chase away all the evil forever. Um, Let's look at Isaiah 42. You don't have to turn there. We'll just, I'll read it to you. It'll be on the screen. But remember it, because it's good. And I always like, if people are going to, like, argue with me later, I always like when they know what I'm talking about. Um, so, like, if you know the verse that I apparently misquoted, please talk to me about it. That being said, I don't think I'm wrong. It'd be really embarrassing of me to think, like, I'm probably wrong, but I'm here to tell you. No, I, I hope by, by the grace of God that, that this is something that is, is helpful and relevant and true. Um, verse 1, Isaiah 42. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. 
This is the Lord speaking through the prophet Isaiah. He's identifying which uh, hundreds of years later we, we wholeheartedly believe is Jesus, um, his servant, the one on whom his spirit dwells. This is the way John the Baptist identified Jesus. This is the way he is identified multiple times in the, the biographies of Jesus. Verse 2, he will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice, and he will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. This is something, because this is describing, verse 1 is a warrior. This is, he's going to bring justice. That all the world is going to wait for this peace, this justice, this uh, absolute objective righteousness. He's going to bring it. And then it says he's not going to be a shouter. He's not going to rally militias in the city square. There are going to be bruised reeds that he will not break, dimly burning wicks that he will not extinguish. And I think about this of just like an image of the, the tenderness and the patience and the faithfulness of God. That there are people that are barely hanging on and he's not just going to cut them off. He's going to raise them up. There are people like you and me, maybe more me than you, that are bruised, that are barely flickering. And he's going to bring justice. He's going to be the advocate for the oppressed. He's going to be faithful. And I, and I love this. This is almost, this is crazy. That he will not be disheartened or crushed. Uh, some of your translations may say, he will not be discouraged. What a gift from God. Like, I'm discouraged eating breakfast. Like, I'm discouraged right now. Like, I'm like but he said, like, he will keep his, his, his focus set and he will move forward with faithfulness and consistency and strength until justice is established all over the planet. And that's amazing. Let's continue in verse 5. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people who walk on it and the spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord, and I have called you, speaking of Jesus, in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people and as a light to the nations. This is not something unique to Israel. This is not something unique to the hour that they were in when Isaiah was writing this. What was unique is that God the Father and God the Son are working together to bring about the destruction of evil and the exaltation of righteousness to open blind eyes, in verse 7, to bring prisoners out of the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from prison. This is language that is relevant in the Deutero-Isaiah second temple period where people were in exile, whatever. This has historical significance, but to us today it's saying like, there are prisons that you cannot escape from that Jesus is going to break off the doors. He's going to grab you by the arm. He's going to lift you up. He's going to carry you out. He's going to do all the heavy lifting because he is the Lord. Behold, oh, I almost skipped the, the main thing I had for you. Verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. I think this is so intense. 
that the Lord is identifying his motivation. I'm going to bring justice. I'm going to open blind eyes. I'm going to rescue oppressed people. I'm going to rescue prisoners. I'm going to do these things because I will not share love with anyone else. I am deserving of all the glory. And this is not narcissism. This is not megalomania. This is pure and holy. In Deuteronomy 4, um, (laughs) Moses identifies God as a jealous God. And you're like, jealousy is bad. Isn't that like part of the Ten Commandments, like covetousness? Isn't that bad? It's like, no, this is exactly what he's talking about in verse 8. He will not share glory with anyone else because no one else deserves it. That would be unjust. That would be wrong. That would be dirty, profane. He says he's a jealous God. He's an all-consuming fire. I just, I'm so drawn to this image. I, I, I hope that over the years, you and I get to know each other. I'm, I'm a pretty awkward person. I get that. But I am not a fiery person. I'm not really a remarkably jealous person. I'm a pretty awkward person. And so when I see Jesus as not just the tender, compassionate, caring person, but when I see him as the king riding in on a horse, like Revelation describes, his garment is like bloody. When I see that, I'm like, wow, that is everything that I'm missing. That is everything the world needs. That is, we don't just need a, a, a calm pacifist, but we need a revolution to rewrite the things that have been broken. So as he liberates captives for the motivation of his own glory, we can, we can look at this as, as the, the stage. This is, this is the battle. So my mind, I don't know about your mind, my mind goes to Helm's Deep. And I was thinking about this. How can I use Lord of the Rings in this sermon? And it's not at all like Helm's Deep. And I was like, Maybe it's kind of like Return of the King, but it's not like Two Towers because they're losing most of the time until the very end. Spoiler alert, the movie's been out for 20 years. Go watch it. The book's been out for uh, 100 years. I don't know how long. <laughs> like, it's been a long time. Go watch the movie. Um, <laughs> um, but the point is, like, that's what I was picturing in my head. I was like, that's not at all what the Lord is doing. The Lord is not hiding in a fortress and hoping that help comes at the last hour. The Lord is advancing. The Lord is moving forward, and and the kingdoms of darkness are being pushed back actively. This is the narrative behind every narrative. This is the news story behind every news story. The Lord is winning. When I am losing, the Lord is still winning. That's why being saved by faith is so beautiful. It's it's not like I need to suit up and and hopefully contribute something. It's like, no, I want to be with him. I want to be with him when he wins. Because he's invited us all to be there. He's invited us all to be a part of this company that will storm the gates of hell and take back everything that was lost. I got ahead of myself there. Let's catch up in the notes. Um, so we talk about the gospel. We talk about the good news. I think this is, this is the good news. This is the life of Jesus. This is... Um, salvation by grace through faith, these sort of things. But I remember 
um, the same teacher that I quoted earlier about the, the mountains thing, um, we were sitting in a class, and it's probably like four hours long, and this guy's talking about like what the gospel is, and all these sweet 18-year-old, 19-year-old kids are like, oh, the gospel is this, the gospel is that, the gospel is whatever. He's like, okay, show me a Bible verse. And they're like, well, crap, I don't know. This one girl I remember, she's like, I know there's a song that says the gospel is simple. And he's like, that's a nice idea, but it's just not in the Bible. And it's, a cute, it's, a, it's a nice song, it's a cute idea, but like, what is the gospel? And I was, I mean, everybody's intimidated at this point. It's like, we're just all being told that we're wrong. <laughs> so like, how do we, like, we were literally here to tell people about Jesus, and now we don't even know how to define the gospel correctly. And, um, and I was like, I had been reading the book of Revelation in the prayer room, and I was like, well, Revelation 14 talks about an eternal gospel, and he's like, read that. And so I look at it. <laughs> I remember Shelby had to leave early to put the kids down for a nap, and she's like, please text me when he says what the gospel is. <laughs> we're, we're all just crying, and we're all scared. Um, verse 6 in Revelation 14 says, I saw another angel flying in midheaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who lived on earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Wow, this sounds really important. Uh, not only is like a, a heavenly messenger delivering it, but it's for every single person. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. And that has nothing to do with the cross. <laughs> what, what in the world is going on? Because the hour of judgment has come, worship him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. I think this is profound because the cross is significant. The life of Jesus is significant. But the point of the good news is that an hour is coming when judgment will be there. And you have the opportunity to worship God now. That is the good news. He's made a way that we can engage with him and worship him today. That we can be reprieved and we can be saved today. That is good news. That is worth telling people about. The good news, the gospel is that that God is worthy of glory. And I remember uh, Pastor Al DeBoer, he used to say, God is available to you at the speed of thought. <laughs> and I like that. I don't know what the measurement of between light and thought is. Sometimes I feel like my thoughts are pretty slow. But, um, <laughs> but uh, like last week after the time change, and I stayed up way too late the night before, like I felt like my thoughts were like barely clocking in, like they were barely moving. But like, I love this idea that right now, without me saying anything or you raising your hand or crying a tear, you could say, like, Jesus, I, I give you glory. Jesus, I want to follow you. And you can be saved. Those who call in the name of the Lord are saved. Those who believe in their heart and confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord are saved. That is good news. Because an hour of judgment is coming, and it doesn't have to be a fearful and terrible thing. It can be a triumphant and beautiful thing because God wins. So I want, I want to conclude. So we talked about this passage. I don't know. I feel like it's come up in almost every sermon, but it's really relevant. It's really important. But um, we're going to look at Philippians chapter 2 because I think this is a good uh, integration. This is a good marriage of the two things that we're talking about where we talk about the compassion and the love and the mercy, tenderness, these sort of qualities, and also the supremacy and the glory of the Lord in Jesus. It's going to read verse 1 in Philippians 2. It says, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, these are rhetorical questions, there is, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same 
love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. This came up when we were talking about what it means to be a spirit-baptized church. This is what it looks like. It looks like nothing else. It looks like recognizing the importance of of things in your life and, and considering other people's lives more important. It's about serving. It's about giving. It's about an upside-down kingdom where the person who has the least is the greatest. The person who is obscure and, and, and kind of invisible is mighty in the kingdom of God. And the reason this matters, verse 5 says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Look at that. He, what, he is God. But he's like, that's not just something that I, I need to attain to. That's not just something that, that you need to hold on to. This is something that I'm giving away. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found, like, empty. Man. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So, the name of, so at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This is tremendous. That what, what we see here is that actually... In the humiliation and the humility of Jesus, he is so like God and he is so glorified that he has attained and represented perfectly what it means to carry the name of the Lord, the Tetragrammaton, the name that the Jewish people to this day do not speak, the impronounceable, personal, intimate name of God, that Jesus bears it with no discrepancy, with no controversy. Absolutely, he is Christ, the Lord, Yahweh, the one, because he gave everything and he died. Because not only in his, his brutal death on the cross, it's like that could be disconnected from everything, but he lived a life in obscurity and simplicity where people kind of liked him for a little while, then they hated him a bunch. He lived in the abuse and the hardship, the Isaiah 53 intensity where he gave himself to be stricken. He gave himself to suffer physical and spiritual torment for the sake of other people. And the Lord's like, that's exactly what God is like. I'm showing you today that this is exactly what the Lord is like. And what happens when he's seen, when faith becomes sight, regardless of theological backgrounds, regardless of knowledge or experience, every knee will bow. I would say regardless of knees, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess, yeah, that's true. He really is. He really is the one. He really is holy. He really is the Lord. And everyone will give him glory. Everyone will recognize him. And this isn't detracting like he's replacing the Father. It says, so that uh, those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
that everyone is glorifying Jesus and everyone is glorifying the Father. The Holy Spirit is searching the depths and revealing it to you and you're speaking to the Lord and he's hearing you and he's recognizing this and this, this dimension of humility and compassion and, and righteousness and justice that this, um, this tenderness and this fury, this, this beauty and this glory are, are overlapping in the most tremendous way that will illuminate the entire planet. Do you know that in, in, in the end, however you prefer to interpret that, uh, it says that the moon and the stars will be like 10 times brighter, which sounds terrible. I'm really sensitive to light. I wear sunglasses like looking at my computer. Like I, <laughs> my eyes are trash. Um, <laughs> thank you for my eyes. I'm not trying to be ungrateful. Um, but, uh, and then... It, it says that in Isaiah, that the moon and the stars will be ten times brighter. And then, in the end, it says that there will be no need for the sun or the moon or the stars because the Lamb will be the light, and there will be no night there. And it's like, Lord, are you this amazing that you literally increase the light of all the celestial bodies in the universe only to outshine them with your own brightness? You're incredible. I don't know if that's literal, you guys. I don't know, but the, the symbol is compelling and beautiful that you are better. You're just better. Even the best thing that we can think of, you're better. And, and so today, I want to I wanna take communion together, um, and, and I want to pray. Um, that we would experience these, these two dimensions of the Lord, that we would experience what he's doing. Um, I want to pray that we would be saved. I'm not going to make you like stand up and people touch you or anything like that. If you want prayer, obviously we'll pray for you. But I'm not going to try and embarrass people into getting saved or something. But I, I want you to have the opportunity to experience the love of God. And I want you to have the opportunity to experience the glory of God. I want you to have the opportunity that uh, Isaiah had in chapter 6 where he, he in, a, in a vision, sees the Lord seated on the throne, the train of his robe filling the entire temple, and he's immediately undone. He's immediately humbled and, and kind of crying on the floor. And the Lord speaks to him. The Lord talks to him, and he gives him a commission, he gives him a job, he, he, he discusses the matters of his heart. And I want you, I want you, I want me to be able to experience that sort of thing, where we can see the Lord in his glory, and we can also feel his love, that we can also feel his tenderness and his compassion. Thank you for listening to this week's message. Our ministry is made possible entirely by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this message and would like to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, visit us online at www.opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give, see our service times, and stay connected with Open Door Church. We hope to see you soon.